Hey there, welcome to Actual Ag. I'm your host, Samantha Bennett, and this podcast is dedicated to answering your questions about agriculture. Not only are those questions answered by me, a graduate student studying these topics in school, but also by specialists that work directly with these topics. So if you want to know if purchasing organic is the way to go, if animal rights are actually important to farmers, or if GMOs are actually bad for you, welcome, you've come to the right place. Hey guys, we have a great episode in store for you today discussing the use of hormones in animal production. And this topic is one that I often hear talked about with a negative stigma surrounding it commonly. And I think that that has to do largely with the miscommunication of what hormones are, why they are used in some forms of animal production, and what their effects are. So I'm super excited to be talking about it today with some amazing guests from my department here at Auburn University, the Department of Animal Sciences. So today we have with us Dr. Soren Rodning and Alex Teague. So before we get started today actually discussing the topic, I want to get to know our guests a little better and um, get to know how they're related to this topic of hormones that we're going to be discussing today. So hi guys, thanks for being here um, and taking the time to talk with us. I want you guys to go ahead and maybe tell us a little bit about your background, how you got involved in the industry, and your experience with the topic. So whenever you guys are ready. Uh, Sure. So I'm Alex Teague. Uh, I am a regional extension agent with the Alabama Cooperative Extension System, which is part of Auburn University, uh, where we do outreach in the community and help cattle producers. I grew up on a cattle farm in North Alabama, Uh, been been around cattle for, for the vast majority of my life. Um, I did a master's and a bachelor's degree here at Auburn University in the animal science department, kind of focusing on the meat side of the equation and, and how we turn these animals into food. And then uh, my, I've also done a PhD here at Auburn, again, in meat science, but working more specifically with, with feeder calves and the transition into the feed yard and all the, the live animal components uh, from the time calves are weaned here in Alabama until they end up uh, in a processing plant and become food. Awesome. Well, War Eagle to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Samantha, thanks for having us on today. Of course. My name is Soren Rodney, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Animal Sciences at Auburn University. I'm also a veterinarian with the Alabama Cooperative Extension System. So, my introduction to cattle production or livestock production started when I was a kid. My grandparents were dairy farmers, so I grew up mostly around uh, dairy farms and, and dairy production. Since my role, since I started my role with Auburn University in 2006, most of my focus since then has been more on beef cattle production. And of course, we do use growth promoting implants that contain hormones in beef cattle production systems in certain situations. And so, um, deal with this topic quite a bit. Actually, have conversations about this topic all the time with uh, interested consumers, uh, family members, friends. So, it's definitely one that I think there's a lot of misinformation out there about the use of hormones in, in cattle production. So I really appreciate you taking the time to put together a little episode on, on this. Yeah, for sure. I think it's one, you know, I hear commonly day to day from my family and friends too. It's a question that people commonly ask about. So I'm excited to be talking about it with y'all today. So before we get too deep into things, I guess I kind of want to step into why are hormones used in animal production, like what purpose they serve, that sort of thing. So if you guys could provide some insight. Yeah, so I think I think the first question to ask is first, just for clarification, is where do we even use hormones, added hormones in in animal production? Because I think most consumers feel like hormones 
or added hormones are used in a lot of different areas. In reality, there's really only two pieces of the livestock industry, or two sectors of the livestock industry, which we use um, added hormones in production. So we don't use any added hormones of any kind in the poultry industry, mm-hmm. um, and we don't use any in the pork industry. Right. Uh, those animals are fairly young when they go to slaughter. They're, they, they haven't reached sexual maturity yet by the time they're processed. And so using added growth-promoting hormones wouldn't do a whole lot to them anyways. Mm-hmm. So we don't, they're not even used at all in those two sectors of the industry. The only two places we really use um, growth-promoting hormones, or hormones in general, would be beef cattle for growth promotion, and then the dairy industry can also use uh, what's called recombinant bovine somatotropin, or RBST, uh, to stimulate additional milk production. But because consumers have, have not been very fond of that idea, the, the, the dairy industry is actually starting to move away from using that very much. So really, growth promotion in beef cattle is about the, the, the biggest place and one of the few places left that we actually use uh, hormones at all, uh, added hormones in the uh, in the livestock production. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the only other place where hormones would be, for growth-promoting hormones would be commonly used would be perhaps in lamb production. So there are some products that are approved, FDA-approved for use in lamb production. Honestly, Alex and I don't work a lot with lamb production, so I don't know how commonly they're used. Um, The few sheep farms that I do work with don't use them. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I would say that by far and away, the most common livestock sector where growth-promoting hormones are used, like Alex said, is going to be in the in, in beef cattle production. And, and really, with growth-promoting hormones, we're, we're using hormones that are normally produced by the animal. Right. So either estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, or some of their synthetic derivatives. Mm-hmm. But we're, we're just supplementing hormones that are naturally produced by those animals anyway. Right. Yeah, I'm glad you guys brought that up about um, what areas of production, animal production, actually use them. Because I think a common misconception is, especially around the chicken industry, people assume that, you know, there's still hormones used and they haven't been used since, what, like the 1950s, I think? Really, ever. I mean, commercially, I don't I, I don't think they've ever truly been used much in the poultry yeah. industry. Yeah, I'm not aware of horm- growth promoting hormones being used ever in the poultry industry or the pork industry. Awesome. Um Poultry is really interesting. I actually worked in the poultry industry for a couple of years before I came back to work for Auburn. And and the biggest thing that's driven the poultry industry is the fact that they, one, they're vertically integrated, mm-hmm. so they have the ability to control a lot of different things. Two is uh, chickens. We can have what's called a very quick genetic or a, a generation interval. So mm-hmm. you know it only takes 21 days for an egg to hatch. That hen then becomes reproductively. Um, she she's able to start laying eggs by the time she's a year old. And so we can start to have a new generation of chickens about once a year where it takes us, you know, twice that long to get cattle through the system. And so we can make a lot of genetic genetic progress very quickly. So all that growth we see in chickens is mostly due to genetic progress we made over the last 50 years, 60 years, and and the science that we have around feed technologies and and what we've been able to do by by making better feed and get those birds to grow a lot quicker. And pork's going to be very similar to that as well, so... Um, and we use a lot of those same techniques in terms of genetic improvement and improved uh, feed technologies and uh, ration development and management in beef cattle. Mm-hmm. But because we're talking about an animal that is going to grow until they're 18-ish months right. of age, there's just some production and economic advantages to using 
growth promoting hormones in beef cattle that we don't see in the poultry and pork industry that's for right. the reasons that Alex was talking about. Yeah, that's right. Awesome. So, yeah, I, those are great points. And I think when we talk about, I think you use integration, they're highly integrated the, for those sort of the poultry industry. I think, you know, my audience might not know what that means. So that just means that that, that area of production, it pretty much is just within itself. Like they can do everything just in that one poultry facility. Like they got yeah. it all. <laughs> so, so, I mean, just very quickly, because this is not the, not yeah, the podcast sorry. talking about. <laughs> so vertical integration means that basically Tyson or Pilgrims or these, these poultry integrators uh, have control of the entire system. They, mm -hmm. they manage the birds from the time they're hatched or actually even before that, with the hens that lay the eggs, they then manage the incubation of the eggs, they, they manage the birds throughout their lives, and they process the birds. So they have a lot of control over the system and can make very quick changes throughout the system, where the cattle industry is, has no integration at all. Mm -hmm. We have some 20,000 cattle producers in the state of Alabama alone, and all 20,000 of them do things differently. Right. And so they're all making their own decisions, and, and, and that, <clears throat> that change doesn't happen quite as quickly because we don't have those just a handful of people making some of those decisions. So. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that, that, that's probably a good topic for another. another yeah, another, another <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to clarify, but yeah, yeah that, yeah, that's a good. Spend an hour on that one. <laughs> I'll have to add that to my idea bank. <laughs> so back, I think your original question is: is why do we use hormones? Yeah, anything? and maybe that's you know in a roundabout way where we're trying to get to. You know, I think the biggest reason we use those, especially in the cattle industry, is from an efficiency standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we want to do the best job we can of managing the resources we can uh, to produce as much food as we can as an in, in as efficient manner as possible. And so these these technologies, these growth promoting uh, hormone implants that we use in beef cattle, allow us to to, to have those animals grow faster, maybe grow a little bit more efficiently, mm -hmm. uh, and and potentially add a little bit more weight to each individual animal, um, which I think is a story we don't tell well enough that. Uh, it, I consider an animal welfare issue. It can be. We can produce more beef with fewer animals. Mm -hmm. uh, we can run fewer animals through the system. We ask fewer animals to uh, sacrifice their lives for us to produce food because we can get more meat out of those handful animals. So, uh, but that's really the reason why we're doing it. It's an efficiency technology. It allows us to, to utilize our resources a little better. Yeah, well, I think what a lot of people don't, don't realize is that growth-promoting hormones in beef production is actually a very environmentally friendly mm -hmm. practice. That's what I was just about to say. <laughs> yeah, because, because we need fewer animals to right. produce the same amount of, of beef. We need fewer acres, less water, mm -hmm. fewer feed resources, because we can make uh, more efficient use, like Alec was saying, of all those resources. And so I've always said for years that farming was the original green industry. Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, they care about the environment more than, uh, more than the average person probably. And this technology is just one example of how farmers make, farmers and ranchers make the most efficient use of the limited resources that they have. Mm -hmm. I agree. So uh, now that we've kind of discussed what hormones are used, why they're used, um, how are these hormones actually administered to these animals? So, you know, when we're defining implants and their role, uh, what, what does that kind of look like in production? So typically in the cattle industry, the way we'll use growth-promoting hormone implants will be in the form of, of what we call an implant. And, and what that implant is is a small pellet that we implant underneath the surface of the skin, typically in the back of the ear, um, which is in a part of the animal that, that we're not processing for food. Um, 
but it still allows us a way to deliver that that hormone in the bloodstream without it being directly next to, to, to some meat tissue, muscle tissue somewhere else. Um, that may happen as few as one time, some, one time in the animal's life when they enter the feed yard or for a producer that's maybe trying to really maximize uh, their production and efficiency as, as many as two or three times in their life. So, Yeah, so the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, has very specific guidelines on how these implants can be administered. Mm-hmm. So they have, they're, they're supposed to be administered, like Alex said, underneath the skin, on the back of the ear, and even very specifically in the middle one-third of the ear. That's where they work the best, and that's where they're the safest. Mm -hmm. So they're not to be administered anywhere else, um, according to label directions, on the back of the ear in the middle one-third. And with that, because like Alex said, the the ear is not processed for food. So Mm -hmm. when that animal is slaughtered and processed, that ear is cut off, discarded, never enters the human food supply chain. Awesome. Yeah, I think that's it's important to include the FDA aspect of it, of it as well because, you know, this is a regulated or regulated process. It's not mm-hmm. just something that producers just do off the cuff or anything. It's it's something that's been approved and has been proven as safe. So, I think that's important no, to consider. Absolutely. Just something to add to that. So, so in addition to the the Food and Drug Administration re- regulations on these animal health products, then you also have the USDA Food Safety Inspection Service that is in these uh, slaughter facilities and in the facilities where this beef is being processed, and they're looking for anything that was maybe done um, by accident. Uh, very, very few times would it be anything be done intentionally. So, but but sometimes accidents happen. But the Food Safety Inspection Service of the USDA is there to catch any of those problems that may occur. And I'm glad that you brought that up because that actually leads into my next question. Um, so I think that that's the major area of interest when people hear hormones in animal production is safety and concerns around safety, um, especially in con- our consumption of it. So I guess whenever we're, we're talking mostly about beef, um, pretty specifically, that's the only area we you know covered that we actually use these products in for the most part. Um, so what are the resulting levels of hormones in beef that we consume? Like, is there an actual, you know, value that we assign to that or is that known? Yeah. So uh, that's a great question, Samantha. So yeah, if you look at, if you took a steer that was not implanted, mm-hmm. okay. And then he, you know, he's grown out, he's finished, he's slaughtered and you took a pound of beef from that, from that steer, you're looking at about seven or no five nanograms for a non-implanted steer, about five nanograms of estrogen per pound of beef. Mm-hmm. Compared to that same steer that was implanted, you're looking at about seven nanograms of estrogen per pound of beef. So just to put that in perspective, a nanogram is one billionth of a gram. Mm-hmm. So a small paperclip is roughly a gram. Mm-hmm. So if you cut that up into a billion pieces, that's <laughs> one nanogram. So take five of those pieces, and that would be the equivalent amount of estrogen in a pound of beef from a steer that wasn't implanted, and then seven. So not not a huge increase, not a big difference between five nanograms and seven nanograms um, from from a pound of beef that came from a steer that was implanted. Mm-hmm. So Plus, we'll remember too that a pound of beef is way above what we would expect to be a serving size, right? Yeah. So 
you know, which none of us eat a real serving size of beef, which is three ounces, the size of a deck of playing cards, I might actually eat a 16 ounce steak from time to time. But <laughs> when you compare that to how much estrogen we produce in our bodies, you know, we're looking at tens of thousands of nanograms of estrogen that's produced in our body every day. Even in, in prepubescent males, probably of, of all the different classes of humans that produce the least, uh, I think I've read a couple papers that show that we're, you know, a young boy is going to produce roughly 40,000 nanograms of estrogen per day uh, in their body. So you'd have to eat an entire steer every day uh, and be a 13-year-old boy to actually start eating enough estrogen to start having uh, any noticeable impacts on, on uh, your body. No, I think that's a great, great point. And, you know, just to further put it in perspective, so Alex and I made somewhere between 100 and 150,000 nanograms of estrogen today. Mm-hmm. You know, Samantha, you probably produce close to half a million nanograms of estrogen today. Right. A pregnant woman, somewhere in the order of 19 million nanograms of estrogen per day. Mm-hmm. So the, the five to seven nanograms of, of estrogen from a pound of beef, which like Alex said, is a, is a large serving of beef, is minuscule in the, the grand scheme of how much we're producing on a daily basis. The other thing that I think is important to point out in this regard as it relates to hormones and our endocrine system is that a lot of um, endocrine systems operate on a mechanism of negative feedback. Right. In other words, if, if we consume more estrogen than we need, our body produces less that day mm-hmm. to, to make things balance. Yeah, there's a regulatory system. There's a regulatory that. system, mm-hmm. exactly. There's a regulatory system that says, hey, we need this much estrogen today, but we got five nanograms from here, so therefore you don't need to produce as much. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad you guys used that example of um, you know what our actual bodies produce every day because I think sometimes... Um, I see people that are coming from a good place, but they try and use uh, plant phytoestrogens as an example of, you know, we consume this much estrogen in a day from plants. Well, I think it's important to know that that's, that's different. Those are phytoestrogens. Our body doesn't process those the same way. So I'm happy that you use the human example because oftentimes when I see people making complaints about animal products and hormones, they're like, well, phytoestrogens don't work the same way, so that's not a valid argument. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, this one is because we're actually talking about our own bodies and what they do every single day. So I I like that you guys use that example. Um, So obviously, you guys mentioned there is no concern um, for us, you know, with the level of hormones found in animal products. Um, And then I think uh, the next thing I wanted to kind of get into, which you kind of covered a little bit, was are these – um, hormones are, is the amount of hormone used regulated? Um, is that something that, you know, is in policy that we have right now? Oh, absolutely. So in order for any of the growth promoting implants to be approved, they have to go through, uh, an FDA review process. Mm-hmm. And as part of that process, the, the manufacturer of that product has to provide evidence of several things. And this, these are in no particular order, but number one, that animal health product has to be safe for the animal. So if I administer this implant to a growing calf, is it safe for that calf? So mm-hmm. that, that's one thing that the, the manufacturer has to prove at, at the very specific hormone levels that may be in that particular implant. Then 
is it effective? That's another thing that the manufacturer has to prove. So is it, is it safe for the animal and is it effective? Does it do what we want it to do? Does it do the things that Alex was talking about earlier in terms of improving growth rates and feed efficiency and those kinds of things? Then, it has, then they have to prove that there are no negative consequences for people that then consume products produced by that animal. So mm -hmm. is, is the beef from animals that receive growth promoting implants, is it safe for people to consume? So they have to prove that. And then the last thing that the FDA is going to look at is, are there any negative environmental consequences? Mm -hmm. And so if, they, if a product fails any one of those four components, it does not get approved and cannot be used. And then, but if it does pass those four tests, then it can be used, but only according to label directions. Right. So a, a product that was approved to have, say, X amount of estrogen and a certain amount of progesterone can only be administered at that level mm -hmm. to a certain size animal. Does that answer that question, Samantha? It does, yeah. yeah. Um, I think that, you know, when we're talking about administrating and why it's important to follow the label and why our producers do, you know, these hormones work similarly when you implant them in the ear. It's kind of like you're creating almost a new organ and a new endocrine organ for these animals. It's a slow release over time. It's controlled. It's not just, you know, we're throwing something into production and we're seeing what the outcome is where it's, it's highly regulated, highly controlled. Sure. Highly regulated, highly controlled, and, and there's a lot of research and development that goes into those products. So, mm -hmm. for example, if, um, if I'm going to implant a 400-pound steer, I may use one implant. If I'm going to implant a 400-pound heifer, I'm probably going to use a different implant. Mm -hmm. those, those implants are designed very specifically for certain sexes of animals, certain sizes of animals, and even somewhat depending on what their primary nutritional source is too. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's a lot of research and development into what is the best combination and using those products in a way other than what's recommended on the label, not only would that not be approved, but it's not gonna be nearly as effective either. Mm -hmm. so, so there's, that's kind of a double incentive to follow the label directions, right? Right. Because that's how it's going to work the best. Mm -hmm. yeah. So if if it does come to a point, if we do, you know, I don't know that this actually happens often, but if a producer decides I'm going to experiment on my own and add two implants instead of when I'm supposed to put one. So does that get caught, do you think, in the production system, like, you know, through the slaughter process, that sort of thing? I know you mentioned the USDA is a key factor in regulating this. So do you think that that, that gets caught in the process? It, it may or may not. It kind of depends. So anytime you administer one of these implants, they they're good, they have slow-release technology. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you put in an implant, and like Alex was describing earlier, it, it may be a series of somewhere between four and six small pellets, mm -hmm. usually, that go underneath the skin and the ear. And that slow-release technology is, is going to release those hormones over time. And so eventually that, that, that implant is going to dissolve and go away. Mm -hmm. Exactly how long those implants last really depend on the type of implants you're giving. So some implants may be gone in as few as 90 days. Others may last closer to 200 days mm -hmm. and everything in between, just depending on the type of implant that you're using. So if, you know, if there are remnants present from multiple implants that, that may or may not be caught, but 
the, the good thing about these implants is that because of their slow release technology and because of the fact that the ear is removed during the slaughter process, there's actually zero meat withdrawal time mm -hmm. for all implants, okay, which is different than some of the animal health products that we use. So, for example, vaccines, and I know we're not talking about vaccines right now, Samantha, but most vaccines have a 21-day slaughter withdrawal, right. 21-day meat withdrawal, meaning that when we administer that vaccine, we can't harvest that animal for beef until 21 days has lapsed. But mm -hmm. there's no withdrawal time for these hormones because of the slow release technology and because of the fact that the ear is removed at slaughter. Awesome. So um, I guess my next question would be, uh, is there a national standard that we have set in the U.S. for the level of hormones allowed to be in beef that is sold in stores to consumers? I don't know if that's an actual, like, a number, you know, that they're like, oh, this one has too much or this this is too little or, you know what I mean, that sort of thing. But so I don't, I don't know if this is the exact answer to your question or not, Samantha, but I'm going to I'll take a stab at it. So when the FDA goes through their approval process, they are going to look at no hormonal effect levels. OK. And that may be getting a little bit in, into the weeds for, for this particular podcast. But mm -hmm. but in other words. If, if I implant a steer and then harvest beef from that, from that steer or that heifer, either, either one, is there going to be, based on the amount of, of hormone that's in that particular beef, you know, amount of beef, steak, hamburger, whatever, is there no hormonal effect level? Mm -hmm. So that, that's kind of maybe the national standard that you're talking about. But okay. I think what's maybe important to talk about at this point, too, is the fact that there's no such thing as hormone-free meat, mm -hmm. all right? There's no such thing as many hormone-free foods. Most foods, I would almost say all foods that I'm aware of, have some level of hormones. Mm -hmm. Now, there may be those phytoestrogens that you mentioned earlier. They're still hormones, though. They're still hormones, and they still can have a biological effect, but there's no such thing as hormone-free beef. There's no such thing as hormone-free chicken. There's no such thing as hormone-free pork. They all have naturally occurring hormones in them anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's an important thing for people to kind of keep in mind that, again, kind of going back to that example that we talked about earlier, if you take a, a pound of beef from a non-implanted steer, you're still going to have five nanograms of estrogen in that pound of beef mm -hmm. versus from an implanted steer seven nanograms so very minuscule difference between those two because there's no such thing as hormone free really any food that i can think of mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think we forget and consumers maybe just don't know that that that, that hormones are natural in all of us and in, in any biological thing that you see around you i mean they're natural um products produced by our body to, to create signals to other or between organ systems and back and forth so yeah you, you're not going to buy anything uh, very, very few agricultural products that don't have some hormone in them of some kind, whether that's all natural products or commercially, conventionally produced products. They exist. Mm -hmm. uh, and and the, any added hormones that you would find in beef that's been that's had uh, growth-promoting hormone implants used is not going to have any biological significance on your body. It's not going to produce enough extra of any of that to cause any problems. So, Yeah, I think that that's 
something that our consumers sometimes even you know people that are outside of animal agriculture they they kind of wrestle with in their minds are like well I see hormone free on the labeling and it costs more so it must be better for me right and I think that's you know somewhere our industry has kind of gone wrong is we've gotten a little label happy I guess is a way of putting it no absolutely yeah and there's a lot of misinformation and I'll be honest with you for for the for the for the uninformed consumer the grocery store is one of the most confusing places to go right now mm-hmm. because of some of the, the 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 labeling that is used to give the appearance that one product is perhaps superior to the other. So, for example, if you go in and you buy no hormone added chicken, mm-hmm. all right, it's you know proudly big letters, no hormone added, but there's an asterisk by that. Yep. And if you go down and read the fine print. It will say that the FDA does not allow the use of hormones in the production of poultry. Mm-hmm. But if you don't read that fine print, then you end up paying $5 for a $1 chicken breast. That's right. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the terms of use agreement that you always sign. You just kind of check the block and call it good. You don't ever actually read anything. That's right. So, that's yeah, right. Yeah. I, I think mm-hmm. that's something that... Um, our consumers are interested in, our non-ag audiences are interested in. So I'm actually going to, you know, go deeper into that topic on labeling with Dr. Sawyer coming up. So that'll be exciting as well. But I'm glad we got to talk about that specifically with hormones. Um, So we're going to kind of wrap things up now. But before we end this episode, I kind of wanted to give you guys an opportunity to plug any additional resources of value possibly for listeners, any like studies that you know about or articles that you think would be beneficial for them. So I think if you're looking for some stuff online, anytime I talk to, to consumer groups or anybody about that are interested in learning more about food production, there are a lot of great web resources out there. Um, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association has got a couple of, of different websites you can look at. One of them would be uh, beefitswhatsfordinner.org, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Pork Producers Association has got porkcares.org. Um, and there are several really good blogs uh, and Instagram accounts that you can look at that are put together by different farmers around that, that kind of show what life's like on a farm and can give you a little better idea of, of what they go through every day to put food on your table. Uh, there's some great ones here in the state of Alabama. Will Gilmer is, uh, is one of my favorite ones to, to, to link folks to. He's a dairy farmer over in Lamar County, West Alabama, that um, loves to just put stuff on, on Twitter. Every morning when I wake up and t- check my Twitter, he's already milked 40 or 60 or 80 cows by the time I've even rolled over in the morning. I follow um, him on Instagram as well. He's great. He's fantastic. Yeah, Feed Yard Foodie is another one I always like to follow. She's, if I understand right, grew up in the city and married a guy that owns a feed yard and talks about life in, life in a feed yard every day for somebody that didn't grow up there. So there's lots of great resources out there if you want to learn more about commercial, conventional agriculture and, and kind of what we're trying to do to, to produce food in as safe a way as possible. So yeah, I think the the resources Alex just mentioned are, are, are wonderful. I don't have anything really to add to that, Smith. But I would like to make one more comment, if that's okay. Sure, please do. Um, one of the one of the things that sometimes initiates this conversation with me, with like I said, whether it be with friends, families, coworkers, uh, whoever, is that the the idea that the use of growth promoting hormones in cattle production is leading to earlier puberty. In children, oh, uh, yes. that's a that's a common kind of starting point that launches this 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 conversation. And so, some things that I think people need to understand about puberty and looking at this just purely from an 
animal science standpoint, mm -hmm. okay, there's yeah. there's several things that that influence when puberty occurred. Okay, one of those is age. Mm -hmm. Right, an, an animal, whether it be uh, whether it be a heifer. Which, or, let me clarify what a heifer is, too, by the <laughs> way. I know a lot of my audience members are probably like, what the heck are you talking about? A heifer is um, a cow or a calf that has been born that has not yet been bred or hasn't reached puberty to be bred. So that's what a heifer is. It's a female cow that hasn't been bred yet or had its first calf. So just to clarify that real quick. That's right. So, so, so when puberty occurs in heifers, it's really important from an animal science and a beef production standpoint, right? And, and the things that influence when puberty occurs is going to be age. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that, that heifer has to be old enough, you know, around about a year of age, give or take a little bit, depending on the breed type. And we won't get all, into all those <laughs> specifics, but she has to be old enough, number right. one. Um, genetics are going to play a role in that to a certain extent. So some breed types will reach puberty at an earlier age, the mm -hmm. same way that some human family lines are going to have kids that reach puberty at an earlier age. And then the other thing that plays a really important role in when puberty occurs is body condition. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, body condition being the amount of, of fat cover that that animal has or that that person has. And that's basically mother nature's way of regulating when an animal becomes reproductively capable of producing the next generation. Number one, are you old enough? Meaning, are you are you big enough to, you know, grow the next generation inside you, give birth, so on? And then, are there enough food resources available to sustain fetal development and then the subsequent lactation? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when you look at modern, the 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 modern grocery store, the modern the modern um, what's the word I'm looking for? Nutritional state of of most people here in the United States is going to be that um, hopefully most people have adequate resources in terms of calories. Mm -hmm. And so, so all of those things play a role in when puberty occurs and it's not the hormones in the beef. Right. It's, it's, it's the age, it's the, the body condition, maybe something to do with family lines, but yeah, you read my mind. I mean, that, that, every time we have conversations about food myths and, and, and uh, you know, just myths about what happens because of our food and specifically hormones. That's the topic that always starts the conversation, it seems mm -hmm. like, or one of them. And, and it's, I don't know that anybody would argue that, that kids today are smaller or are, are less in good body condition than they were 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. So, right. Um, so, but. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. That was actually something I meant to touch on because, you know, I think that is my, my own mom asks this question sometimes. I mean, she's like, well, how do you explain this? And I'm like, well, our kids are a little more um, nutritionally sound than I think a lot of people yeah, used to be. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm glad you guys included that. And I, I just want to thank you for your time. Um, this has been a long time coming. So I just want to thank you guys both for participating today. And hopefully this answered a lot of questions for some of our listeners. And with that being said, I'm signing off. Thanks for listening. Thank you. And thank you for having us. That concludes this episode of Actual Ag. Once again, I'm your host, Samantha Bennett, and I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. Before you leave, though, make sure to follow or subscribe to this podcast on whatever listening platform you're listening on. And make sure to follow us on Instagram as well, at actual underscore ag, to stay up to date on what topics we're going to be discussing and to send me your questions on agriculture. 
talk to you guys soon. Bye, y'all.